Thanks for listening to this podcast from Walks Around Britain. For more information, our terms of use, and to click through to see the show notes on our blog with photographs, videos, and links to related sites, please visit walksaroundbritain.co.uk. edition of the Walks Around Britain podcast, we discover some excellent walking along the side of the Caledonian Canal. We celebrate the centenary of HF holidays and... I cycled the Monster Trail the other day and I counted over 300 people cycling the other way. Families, older people, groups. The Chief Executive of the Peak District National Park, Jim Dixon, talks about the Monster Trail. Hello and you're very welcome to the 18th edition of the Walks Around Britain podcast. I'm Andrew White and I'm your walking guide through the next 30 minutes of outdoor and walking chat here on the podcast. Now I did say we were going to be getting out more in this series of the podcast to discover some fantastic places to go walking. Well, earlier this year the Walks Around Britain team spent a week in Scotland filming some video walks along the Caledonian Canal in association with the Scottish Waterways Trust. Now there's some great walking to be had along the towpaths, as you can see from our video walks. So I was keen to find out more about the history of the Caledonian Canal and the walking in the Great Glen area. But first I asked Stephen Wiseman, the Heritage Officer for the Caledonian Canal, to explain more about the Scottish Waterways Trust. The Scottish Waterways Trust is a, a young and very energetic new charity. In a way, we're the charitable wing of Scottish Canals, who used to be British Waterways. Scottish Canals have got the responsibility for the management of all the canal systems in Scotland. So that's Forth Clyde, Union, Crinan, Monkland and Caledonian Canal, where we are. Our job within Scottish Waterways Trust is to try and connect with people, do project work with communities that uh, benefit people and places. So it's uh, very much about heritage, wildlife, history, where people have come from, the stories that make us who we are today, and uh, also about healthy living, getting people out there to find out what's happening around about them. And the canal's a great place to do that. And as you say, this is one of several canals that the, that the Scottish canals look after. That's right, yeah. The Caledonian Canal is, uh, is connecting down in the south. It connects Fort William area from Corpac right up through the Great Glen to uh, the northeast in Inverness. And the Caledonian was built way back in the early 1800s. Pretty much a push for military, but also to connect with the people up here again because the Highlands had gone through a, a, a dramatic change and they were purged. A lot of people left this, uh, this wonderful part of the country and moved abroad. But um, the canal's still here today. It's gone through many changes from commercial uses. The fishing industry used it a lot, but as that fell away in the 1980s, things took a dip. And gradually now, you know, leisure, recreation has taken the foremost part in the traffic. And there's maybe 5,000 trips up and down by boats along the canal nowadays. 
We've seen quite a lot of people uh, enjoying the canal in various ways, haven't we, on our travels? Sure. Um, I mean, the canal towpath is a wonderful place to walk. It's very easy going. It's on the flat. It takes you from town out into countryside. And we often talk about it as a kind of blue and green artery that runs from the hearts of towns and takes you into the surrounding countryside. So it's great for that. Dog walkers, joggers, cyclists, all these kind of people. But again, today we've also seen people in kayaks, canoes, people in cruisers, boats, yachts, a whole variety of people using the water as well as, as, well as the land. I think once you're down here, time kind of stops a wee bit. The canal to me is a meditative place. It's a place to relax and everybody becomes slightly happier, to be honest. Uh, so it's a great place to put the stresses away. Everybody smiles, waves, passes the time of day. And uh, yeah, it's one of the great attributes of canals. So let's get to do some walking. Well, we've set off on a six and a half mile walk from Banavie to Gerlochie. And Banavie is famous for the hugely impressive Neptune staircase. And if you've timed it right, you'll also get to see the steam train from Fort William to Malig washing by too. So Stephen, tell me a bit more about the history of the canal. Well, the canal's been here a wee while now, of course, uh, 200 years or so. And uh, the original idea of, of uh, a canal was uh, came after the Jacobite Hanoverians in the, in the, in the late 1700s, that, that whole war that happened up here in the Highlands. That was part of it. There was a, a real feel in the Highlands of a depressed state, really. Uh, the government really weren't looking for big, useful projects to employ people and then re-engage them with the government itself uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, but also the military had a keen uh, idea that this would be a super chance to get from one end of the country to the other without going right round the open seas and therefore avoiding Napoleon's French pirates because they had been at war with France for some time. So this was a big push into the, the late 1700s. So these things kind of came together, this idea of, of, of linking up four lochs. In fact, James Watt, quite a famous Scotsman, uh, he came up and surveyed a lot of the, the locks sometime before it actually was agreed to do. But in 1800, with all these ideas pulling together, they passed an Act of Parliament and decided that they would get in the man for the job to build this canal, and that was Thomas Telford. And Thomas Telford was already a famous engineer and architect, wasn't he? Oh, absolutely. He had a lot of great uh, bits of work under his belt already. Um, you know, he, he has, of course, done other canals. He's done huge bridges. He's done massive amounts of engineering and architecture work. So it wasn't just... We often talk about Telford on his own, but, of course, he was, he was chosen because he had a massive building network, uh, connections there throughout the country, but also linking in with, with Wales and, you know, a lot of stuff in the Caledonian Canal actually came from Wales. They used Welsh timber. The, the Bridge of Moy, for instance, the last remaining swing bridge that he put in, was built in Wales, out of Cast Island, and shipped up here. So, you know, he had links all throughout the UK and, and, and he was, as I say, the man for the job. You know, but there was lots of people involved and over 3,000 people helped to build this canal over the, you know, sort of 20 years or so that it was constructed. So it took quite a long time to do. The original idea was it would take seven years and cost £500,000. Like every building project you've ever heard of, <laughs> it took twice as long, it took three times as long almost, and it cost twice as much, it was about a million pounds. There could be a parallel with HS2 there. <laughs> maybe, maybe. <laughs> but you know, I took that million pounds, you can go online these days and, and you can pick up some of these calculators, and I took the million pounds from 1800 or so, and then I got it to calculate out how much that would cost today. And today that's about 100 million. Now, when you think that uh, Holyrood, uh, Holyrood in, in Edinburgh cost 420 million, you know, we had a whole canal built here for a quarter of that. Yeah. So, um, great value for money. But of course, 
they didn't, uh, they, what, what they spared on in those days was health and safety and uh, they didn't need to do risk assessments and method statements for all that and if somebody was ill or hurt or injured they'd find somebody else. Yes. And I wouldn't have thought that wages would be much either. No, that's right. It, was, it, would, it would have been a really tough job and, and the kind of people you'd have had working here. In the Highlands, a lot of crofters, you know, a lot of people would have been crofting at the same time. So, so they would have at times, at certain times of the year, their eye on other things, such as lifting the potatoes, you know, tatty-hauken, or <laughs> cutting the peats, or something else. So there was often quite a lot of, quite a lot of times where people just didn't turn up for work. <laughs> and Telford did bring some people in from Ireland, and that wasn't particularly well looked on as you can imagine mm. but you know I think that was understood you couldn't do two things at once uh, and of course it, it was a, a great occupation for people of the time here because one of our best exports I always think uh, is not whiskey although it's a great thing in itself but it's people yes we have exported people from Scotland all around the world and they've been governors in New Zealand and Australia and Canada and they've built things and made things and made things happen all around the world it's our greatest export Movers and shakers. Absolutely, absolutely. But you know, the people who stayed and did this, for instance, here, were great workers. And if you look at the scale of this canal, um, it is, as I often refer, refer to it, the monster canal. And that's because it is huge dimensions to take all these big military frigates. That's going back to that whole idea. Also because Loch Ness Monster. I was going to say, is that because Nessie needs to get to the sea? Well, some people have thought that that might be a way for her to skate. And, you know, for saying we're not seeing so many sightings of Nessie at the moment, although there have been some recently. But, you know, maybe she's actually departed, uh, you know, via Neptune's staircase into Loch Lenny. Who knows? But she'll come back. Ah, she'll be back. Well, this has been a lovely walk, which you can see for yourself on the Walks Around Britain website. And I'm looking forward to another tomorrow. So Stephen, another day. Where did we walk to and from today? Today we started out at Fort Augustus and uh, we can hear the lock gates just opening behind us here at Kytra, uh, screeching their way open. Yeah, we've started at Fort Augustus and we're now sitting in the beautiful idyllic spot at Kytra. Kytra comes from an old Gaelic word meaning the place by the river in the woods, uh, which is lovely. And that's exactly what it is. But that's a, a lovely little five mile return walk. Yeah, hard to beat. And if you want, you can stay here too. Exactly. At Kytra, there are actually two cottages that set up, uh, holiday cottages. The Scottish Waterways Trust and Scottish Canals have linked in with another charity called Vivat. They have resurrected some of these old buildings, renovated them and set them out as holiday cottages. So you can have that very long driveway into your beautiful little cottage and when everything goes quiet at night, you've got this whole area to yourself. It's yours. It's yours. So my job with the Scottish Waterways Trust as Heritage Officer has really been to connect people with the Caledonian Canal, but not just the canal, with its heritage, the wildlife, uh, the history, their history, but not just for our benefit, for their benefit. Um, it's uh, great for you to get out and understand these things, breathing fresh air, linking with what's yours, your local heritage. And that's done in a whole variety of ways. Some people, you know, sort of come to us through school parties. So lots of school children have enjoyed boat trips and doing projects with the John Muir Award, for instance. Over 150 children have gained a certificate through that project with, with myself in the project. Uh, but we've also linked in with volunteers doing work such as Michelle that we've, we've met in their travels, working on the, the cycling walks routes, other people doing work with me in schools or looking at archive material and building up historical information. Lots of different areas to, to, to develop. And if you're not lucky enough to live along the Great Glen, 
You could always visit. Oh yes, yes, yes. There's lots of things to do and enjoy here and people come and, and, and walk the Glen, the Great Glen Way, they go up the mountains and we hope through opening up, uh, you know, the accessibility to the towpaths. I mean, they've always been here, but, you know, people should be aware that they can come down and enjoy this and take these walks, short walks, uh, very accessibly and loads of places to stay. Accommodation is right throughout the Glen. People will even um, shuttle your baggage if you want to walk areas and take it from one end to the other. We've met people today on our walks that, that were doing just that. Now, Stephen mentioned Michelle there, so I caught up with her to find out what she's been doing with the Scottish Waterways Trust. Well, I've been working on a project to promote walking and cycling along the towpath. So I've been looking at for walks that are suitable um, maybe an hour, a couple of hours or half a day or a similar sort of thing for cycling. So I've been basically walking and cycling from Corpach down on the west coast all the way up to Clacknaharry, which is on the east coast at Inverness, looking at what would be suitable that I could recommend for people to take up. So all these walks are from the towpath? Yes, and the brilliant thing about that is that there's no navigation needed really. There's always parking at the beginning or end. And on the information that we're going to produce, we'll show people where facilities are, you know, toilets, cafes, that sort of thing. So, And there's lots of fantastic places along route, aren't there, to discover? There are, yeah. There's lots of interesting features which we'll be pointing out to people. And uh, just generally there's lots of beautiful wildlife to see. The scenery is spectacular. Um, it really is. You cannot beat it. It's a really wonderful way to experience the Great Glen. And we've been blessed with a couple of days of great weather at the moment, but even, even in overcast conditions, this is just a stunningly beautiful place to be. That's right, yes, yeah. Um, even if, if it's raining, I think sometimes that actually really helps with the, the whole atmosphere. You really feel like you're experiencing Scotland and it's a true glory. So there's been a lot of people around, hasn't there, today as well, which has been quite surprising, really. Yes, yeah, there's always... I've, I've, that's noticed that a lot. There's plenty of people who use the canal on a daily basis, not just the tourists. And there's always plenty of people on the water, people fishing, cycling, jogging, dog walking. The history really is, is what you can really bring out of this, as well as the landscape. The actual building of the canal is, is, uh, has been a particular highlight for me, to actually read up on uh, the, the engineering that went into it and um, how they actually hand dug this canal and, and the conditions that they did and with the equipment that they had, um, it's quite remarkable. And if that's whetted your appetite to see more, you can watch our video walks along the Caledonian Canal on our website. And you can find out more about the walks and the cycling trails along the canal devised by the Scottish Waterways Trust by visiting their website. You can find the links to it on the show notes to this edition of the podcast on our blog. Just click through from our homepage at walksaroundbutton.co.uk. <laughs> Now, 2013 marked the centenary of one of the UK's most prolific walking and activity holiday companies, HF Holidays. Their centenary was celebrated throughout the year with a number of special events, including a weekend for members of the press back in March. And it was then when I talked to Steve Backhouse, Head of Holidays at HF Holidays. So, Steve, tell me about the history of HF Holidays. Uh, yeah, very fascinating history. It goes back to kind of the 1890s. Uh, there was a guy called Thomas Arthur Leonard from Colne in Lancashire, and he took his local group of mill workers up to Ambleside in the Lake District for a, a walking holiday, which these days sounds remarkably uh, mundane. People do pop-ups at the lake for weekends. 
but in the 1890s that was really quite a revolutionary step to get ordinary working people out into the, the outdoors walking. Uh, that created a, a first organisation called uh, Cooperative Holidays Association uh, and in 1913 Leonard came up with a sort of slightly different idea uh, called the Holiday Fellowship, broadly similar, getting people out, out into the outdoors enjoying walking. At that time um, he thought the original organisation had got a bit too kind of middle class and wasn't focused enough on internationalism so in 1913 comes up with this new organisation, Holiday Fellowship, uh, a bit more kind of back to basics and more international in its theme. Um, ironically actually as things have progressed, Holiday Fellowship or HF Holidays as it is now, invested more in its, its locations and so it was a much more higher quality outlook and actually the original organisation sadly kind of disappeared kind of 15 years or so ago. Um, we're still going strong. So what's the secret of HF Holiday's success? First I think we've had to sort of change greatly over 100 years. Uh, things have moved on you know, a huge amount in society over that, that time. 100 years ago you've been staying in a wooden hut um, eating very basic foods. These days that wouldn't, I'm sure that wouldn't be acceptable for a huge number of people so we're very much into good quality accommodation, good food, lovely warm comfortable places to stay uh, and obviously the places we've been to evolved quite a lot over 100 years that these days people travel all around the world to enjoy our holidays. What hasn't changed and I think it's been sort of the secret really is firstly our kind of love of the outdoors, people still love getting outdoors, uh, walking, uh, enjoying the countryside. Uh, but also the kind of sociable experience you get with a holiday with us that um, we're very much about walking as a group, uh, being together as a group in the evening and during mealtimes uh, and that kind of sociable experience is, is kind of the hallmark of a holiday with us and that's, that's very definitely stayed the same even though um, things have changed on the holidays have moved an awful lot over 100 years. I think perhaps what you don't realise is when you come to a holiday like this is that you may come as a couple or a single person, but you are talking to a lot of people at the dinner table, at the breakfast table, you're going on walks together and you're becoming totally. a lot more sociable. Yeah, well, we always think a holiday with us is a very friendly sort of set-up. Uh, if, you, if you're just the sort of person that wants to sit in your room and, and be on your own, probably we're not the kind of holiday for you. But if you, if you love being with other people, you'll always meet new friends, uh, people with shared interests, that, like the outdoors as well. We have an awful lot of people who are single come on our holidays and feel it's a very safe, friendly environment and yeah, really enjoy being around other people. And we, we, we try and make sure the holidays work for that to make sure it's a really good sociable experience. So you're head of holidays. Great job title, isn't it? It's fantastic. What, what does that involve? Uh, essentially, I, I lead a team of 15, 16 people that uh, plan all the holidays. So that's everything from planning walks and planning our activities, uh, booking things like coaches when we go overseas, booking hotels, um, organising flights, basically putting lots of different packages of a holiday together to make hopefully a really good experience. And where do you see HF holidays being in the next 100 years? Crikey, I think I'd need my crystal ball out for that. I mean, uh, certainly in the next kind of uh, 10 to 20 years, I'm sure we're keen to keep growing. There's, there's more, uh, you know, people enjoying the outdoors and um, to be better known, perhaps more places around the UK. Uh, in 100 years, I, I'm, I've no idea where we'll be. It's, I'm sure over the last 100 years, we've had to evolve hugely. Uh, maybe in 100 years, there'll be a whole new different types of holiday experience. Uh, but what I'd hope is we're still... Um, organising holidays as a group where people are enjoying each other's company but, uh, uh, but maybe in a hundred years time they'll be doing something completely different that we haven't heard of now, who knows. And there's an extended version of that interview along with highlights of the walk to Malham on the YouTube version of this edition of the podcast and you'll find a link to it on the show notes on our blog. The Peak District was the first of the 15 national parks in Britain 
and it's one of the busiest, with an estimated 8.4 million visitors a year. But it doesn't run itself, and the man in charge is Jim Dixon, who chatted to me about the successful Monsell Trail and the challenges for the park in the future. So Jim, tell us about how the National Park came about. Well, there was a couple of things came together, really. First of all, there was the that great post-war reconstruction. The, the man who really founded the National Park movement in, in Britain was John Dower. And John Dower was a, a planner and a great visionary. And he could see that as the nation needed to have more room for housing and industry and minerals and farming, so it too needed to protect its nature and its wild places. So there was that great sense that there was, in the reconstruction of post-war Britain, how could we protect these very, very special places from the expansion of the cities? You also had people like the, the great landowners who had, had seen a significant change uh, from being the people that had all the power and all the wealth. You know, the Duke of Devonshire in 1932 stopped all the, the kinder trespasses from climbing onto the moors. In the post-war years, the great landowners realised that they had to have a different relationship with their communities. And look at Chatsworth today, you know, it's a great customer-focused place that people love to visit. So you had those two issues of a threat to the landscape, plus the opportunity of uh, farmers and landowners opening up a bit and saying, well, we need to allow people to come and visit this area because there's, there's an income to be made and that money can go back into looking after the place. So there was these great, great forces that were symptomatic of the great social changes that were happening in Britain. Let's be honest, national parks were created at the same time as universal education, mm. the NHS, the Town and Country Planning Act. Those great progressive bits of legislation that made post-war Britain the success that it is today. And the great thing is national parks were part of that. So tell me a bit more about the history of the park. Well, one of the things that's on my shoulders as chief executive here is, is the great legacy of achievements of the people who established the Peak District National Park in 1951, uh, the great pioneers who established the first warden service, now our ranger service, the very first visitor centre at the, the old Nags Head in Edale. Those great pioneers set up things that today are the core of what the National Park does, providing those services to the visiting public, to the local farming community. Uh, and today I'm really conscious that what I have to do is to make my contribution to the next generation. What great benefits are there of the National Park? I think the very first thing is that the protection of the National Park means that for this generation, for future generations, the, the fantastic landscapes of the Kinder Massif, the moorlands, uh, those great sweeps of moorland that run all the way up to our northern boundary, up towards the M62, the beautiful dales that I'm very familiar with here around Bakewell, fantastic dales like Wydale and Cheedale and Longdale and all these fantastic places, Dovedale. Those great assets for the nation are protected long term. I think the other key benefit is that there's a lot of people who work in the National Park Authority and work with our partners who are very skilled at managing those landscapes. Archaeologists, listed building specialists, the planners, the rangers, there are farm conservation advisors and those great specialists bring their skills to bear both to protect the landscape but also to make it accessible to people. 
So the fantastic trails network that we have, the Monster Trail, the Tissington Trail, the High Peak Trail, those don't just come about by accident. Very skilled people uh, working for the National Park over decades have created that fantastic network of trails and they look after them today and we're working on developing them too for future generations. So those skilled people who help the visitor and the local residents understand and experience the National Park and provide that very specialist support network. That's really the benefit of a National Park. And I think the biggest thing the National Park has done has been the development of the Monsell Trail. I think it's been one of the most fantastic things we've done. Uh, when I first came here there was a great debate about whether the railway should be open between uh, Matlock and Derby and the conclusion then was that it was really not going to happen. And I felt that there was a real opportunity and I was really pleased that we had some support from the Department of Transport. Uh, we spent quite a lot of money by our standards, a million and a half pounds, but what a fantastic return on that investment. I cycled the Monster Trail the other day and I counted over 300 people cycling the other way. Families, older people, groups, a really, really exciting thing. Not just cyclists, horse riders, people on mobility scooters and of course walkers as well. Great success, great economic success too. But what we have to do, we've got to be thinking now, as we are here in the National Park, about what next? How do we make sure that you can come from Derby or Nottingham or Sheffield or Stoke or Manchester and you can bring your bike, uh, you can come by bus or by public transport and then you can come straight out of that train or the bus onto a trails network. So we're really keen to open up the trails network uh, to Matlock so you can cycle or walk or ride from Matlock all the way up to Bakewell, join the Monster Trail and then head all the way up to Buxton. Stay in your hotel in Buxton and then you go back the next day. So expanding the trails network and particularly, really important to me, connecting those networks up to the great cities around us of Manchester, Sheffield, Stoke, Barnsley, Derby, Nottingham. And that I think will be a great prize for the next few years. Because actually from a National Park point of view, it's well connected for, for rail, isn't it? Well, I think we're, we're fortunate in this National Park because we are surrounded by great cities. That's sometimes the hard work about the Peak District. There's also the positive opportunity. And I think um, in an era where often, let's be honest, a lot more people have got a lot less money in their pockets, uh, perhaps running a car is rather an expensive thing. For young men in particular these days, owning and running a car is an expensive thing. But we mustn't, we mustn't stop those people from getting experience of the National Park. So the bus network, the rail network, and the related network of, of cycling, walking, trails is, is really important. And I think to, uh, to, you know, the great vision is that you can come out from, from Manchester or Stoke or Sheffield, uh, experience the National Park. And of course, the great thing about it is it's low carbon, it's low impact on the community. But the other fantastic thing is cyclists and walkers will be spending more money. And that's really important because that circle of, of putting something back into the National Park, into the community, into the businesses and the people that live here all the time is really important. It's been great to see businesses like uh, the cycle hire businesses at either end of the Monson Trail creating jobs for local people, uh, creating demand for local produce uh, uh, and also supplying a fantastic service to the visitor and I think there's a lot more potential we're certainly going to be looking very hard at Millersdale, uh, the, the station complex that we own, 
right in the heart of the Monson Trail. Uh, we're very keen to develop that as a fantastic hub for visitors. And of course that's going to be difficult with the budget restrictions that the, the National Park has now. It is and I think we could do one of two things as an organisation. I mean our budgets are going to be cut over a five or six year period by from about eight million pounds to about five million pounds. That's about what's likely to happen. It's not what I would choose but it's what I think is likely to happen. And in reality we could roll over and say we're going to have to do a lot less and life's just tough and we're just going to retract and retract and retract. Or alternatively we can say well actually here's an opportunity, here's an opportunity for us to sell our wares to the visiting public. Um, perhaps we can be a bit more commercial in some areas, we can trade a bit more in our visitor centres, maybe we could even open some more. Uh, um, we could certainly uh, benefit from the visiting public spending their money and contributing to the continued development of the National Park. So I think you'll see the National Park in the next few years um, trading a bit more, charging more for some services, offering more services to the visiting public but paid for. Yeah. Uh, and, and, uh, and of course I'd love to be in a position to offer everything we do for free and a lot of the services like ranger services and the, the trails will all remain a free service to people but we will have to charge for more, we will have to bring in more income simply to sustain those um, uh, trails and, and the services. Our trails network for example costs us about £200,000 a year to run and that's simple maintenance, clearing vegetation, resurfacing, all those kind of very simple things and we need to ensure that that £200,000 is there this year, next year and in 20 years time to make sure that these key services to the visiting public are there. And you'll find our video walk along part of the Monsell Trail on the show notes on our blog. Well, that's it for another Patch Podcast. Remember, our website has more information about enjoying the outdoors at walksaroundbutton.co.uk. Until next time, thanks for listening and happy walking.